Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast world. I'm Brooke McCallery. Fast-paced world. Fast-paced world, yeah. Fast world also. Welcome to episode 232, where you speak to Florence Williams, the author of The Nature Fix. I do, in a perfectly aligned follow-up to March's experiment. Nice, nice, neat little bow on that experiment this episode is. So Florence's book, The Nature Fix, has been our book club book for March, our Instagram book club. And I know a lot of you have already read it and commented on how beautifully it tied into uh, last month's experiment. And of course, I wanted to, to try and chat with Florence as we were learning about ourselves and nature and the role that it had on our happiness. Uh, and it was wonderful. So you spoke to Florence about halfway through our mm-hmm. experiment last month. I did. Did this conversation influence the rest of the experiment for you? Did it change you? Did it? Did you get extra clarity from it? Uh, that's a good question. I, I, I think I just found myself more and more convinced of the importance of what we were doing. You know, it kind of started out as a light experiment when we very first, you know, pitched it to each other. Mm. It was like, oh, this was a nice thing to do. We're in the mountains. We were like, this is going to be easy. Yeah. Mm. And as we began researching it and then as we began actually experimenting with spending an hour a day outdoors, I started to realise not just how nice to have this was but how vital it was and having – spoken with Florence halfway through the experiment, I realized that that's not just something that people are thinking. That is something that scientists are discovering. Mm. The number of research projects that Florence talks about in her book and the ones that we've looked into that have these huge effects, not just on the individual, but on communities and society and civilized, Mm. like the civilized world as Mm. a whole, Mm is phenomenal to me. Like it really, to me, there is something very profound in this idea of of reconnecting to nature that could actually be one of the keys to arresting the decline of a lot of things that are happening in society at the moment. Mm. Uh, And Florence and I talk kind of briefly about the impact it can have on, on us as individuals and our environmentalism and activism and um, not political as in like a, a bipartisan political, but our, our view of the world in a political way. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. So to me, it actually just made the experiment feel deeper and heavier in a good way. Yeah. More significant. Yeah. yeah. Good. It's great. I really, really enjoy speaking with her and I wish I had like a day to pick her brain rather than, you know, 30 minutes. Um, but yeah, I think I think... I hope people are going to get a lot out of it. I know yeah, I did. Absolutely. Where do you? Where can people go to find out more about Florence and also pick up a copy of her book? The best place to go would be her website, which is florencewilliams.com. Her book is called The Nature Fix. She's a, a journalist, so she writes for a lot of magazines and things. She's also created a couple of podcasts, one of which was for Outside Magazine. Uh, I'm going to link to both of these in the show notes. She's currently working on a new one as well, but... The Outside Magazine one was uh, specifically focused on women in adventure extreme sports. Really cool. Mm. So I'm going to link to that as well. But uh, yeah, head to her website. That's got all her links to the book, her podcasts, her social media pages. uh, And yeah, and the awesomeness that is Florence. Awesome. Awesomeness. Awesome, awesome. 
Enjoy. Hey, Florence, how are you? Hi, Brooke, I'm well. How are you? I'm super well, even better for talking to you. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Oh, no worries. It took a little bit of uh, time zone finagling on my part, but I'm really, I'm really glad we got here. <laughs> I can never remember what time zone I'm in either. So, Oh, I'm, I'm useless even when I'm in the one place you know, permanently. And now that we've been moving around, I'm just terrible. I'm constantly asking people what time it is. <laughs> so it is wonderful to talk to you for many reasons. The most timely of which is that we're in the process, right? We're smack bang in the middle at the moment of doing our first slow experiment of 2018, which uh, is spending time in nature every day. We're aiming for an hour a day, my husband and I, uh, but also we've got hundreds of people playing along with us uh, who are listening to the podcast. I love that. love hearing that. That's so cool. It, and, you know, it is, it's been really interesting actually to see the impact it's had because I've, I've been reading your book and you so perfectly put into words this idea that we know that it's good for us, that we know that there's something really impactful that happens when we spend time in nature and we're also really good at not doing it. And we're also really good at procrastinating and putting it off. When you talk about nature, first of all, what qualifies as nature? Mm, that's a great question. I have a very generous, broad-minded definition of it, I think, uh, which is uh, I, I sometimes rely on Oscar Wilde's definition. And he just said a place where birds fly around uncooked. <laughs> I thought that was very funny. And I also thought it got to the point that we don't have to think of nature as being pristine. You know, we don't have to think of it as being a wilderness area. I mean, that just makes it kind of unattainable, you know, as, in terms of our daily connection. And I think that's the wrong kind of concept. I think that we can find nature where we are and we have to find it where we are. You know, most of us live in cities. There is nature in cities. You know, we just have to know sometimes where to look for it or how to look for it and then how to really maximize what we get out of it and how to optimize that. And, I, you know, so I live in a city now. I live in Washington, D.C., but I used to live in the Rocky Mountains, and I, I used to be a real snob about nature. I used to think, well, if it's not, you know, a beautiful mountain, you know, in the sunset, you know, with wild deer bounding by, you know, I just don't even care. <laughs> but that's what I love about your work is that it's so it, it's it makes this idea of spending time regularly in nature so accessible. Because I mean, I get it. We're traveling around at the moment, and this is probably the biggest bit of pushback we're getting from people who are doing the experiment with us. Is it must be easy for you guys to immerse yourself in nature because you're in the Rocky Mountains, because you're in the Kootenays, because you're in, you know, out on the prairies or whatever it may be. There's a lot of nature to experience. And that's why I put together a scavenger hunt checklist for people who are, who are playing along that included things like just looking at a flower or watching the clouds or finding a patch of grass and putting our feet on it. Because I think that exactly. it's really important to be able to do that in a city or in the suburbs or wherever you find yourself. Do you find that people soften into the idea of spending more time in nature once they realize that you're just talking about something natural? 
I think there are many reasons why people soften into it. I think that's one of them. But I think, you know, you said in the beginning that um, sometimes people need a little bit of a kick in the pants because we know it's even though we know it's good for us. You know, it's sort of like broccoli. We know it's good for us, but it's not the first thing we grab. (laughs) But one of the main messages in my book is that we undervalue nature and we undervalue how we feel in it. So we may sort of, you know, hurry through a park on our way to someplace or we may go for a walk with the dog. But, you know, we're multitasking. We're trying to make a phone call. We're listening to a podcast. Maybe we're listening to some kind of, um, you know, Olympic coaches playlist because we're trying to, you know, maximize our, um, cardiac workout. And that's just the wrong approach. And if what we're looking for ultimately is restoration and sort of emotional well-being, and, you know, the research that I found in this book really shows that that is what nature is so good at providing. And we just don't give it a chance. You know, we, we just are not really paying attention to it. Uh, so, so that's kind of my big point. It's not only do we know nature is good for us, but, but we need to know more (laughs) about how really good for us it is. And then we need to start paying attention to how we feel when we're outside, because if we do that, I believe that we will recognize, oh, actually I am in a better mood than before I went for my walk. I do feel like my brain has more clarity. I feel like I'm getting more ideas. I feel calmer, you know, I'm friendlier, you know, when I go back home and hang out with my family. Uh, These are things we really need to pay attention to or or they're just going to blow by us and we're not really going to notice. Absolutely. And there are two things that I love that you've just said. One is that you... By, by presenting the research and doing the research and, you know, making it so accessible, you're giving names to the way people may feel when they start to embrace time spent in nature. But the other part of it, the thing that I am constantly talking about is paying attention. Because I think once you start to pay attention, once you start to feel the difference and recognize the difference and you have words to describe it, it is transformative. You know, you can say, I'm, I am a better parent, I'm a better partner, I'm a better friend, I'm a better colleague, whatever it may be, because of these things. I'm happier, I feel more creative, I feel more restored, you know, and, and to be able to, to not just sort of have this wishy-washy, woo-woo sort of feeling better, well-being kind of thing that doesn't really have any concrete um, concrete kind of way of talking about it, as real as it is, I think what you do is 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 brilliant because it, it makes it something that we can all talk about and we can all relate. Well, thanks. And I, I also I also am a huge fan of giving people sort of concrete tips and ideas because even it's one thing to say, well, just go outside and pay attention, but that's hard to do. You know, we're so used to multitasking. We're so used to, um, you know, just overthinking mm-hmm. <laughs> and kind of overtaxing our, you know, frontal cortex. So, so I have some tips about that too, that I have found very helpful about how to be mindful, you know, when we're outside in nature. And of course we all hear all the time, oh, mindfulness is so good for you. Meditating is so good for you, but it's hard to do. And I think that being outside in nature is actually a great way to do it. And so, you know, some of my tips and what I have found to be very helpful in terms of really engaging all my senses and awakening my sensory brain so that my thinking brain can kind of take a little bit of a rest uh, is that I really try to listen, you know, to the sounds of nature. Mm. I make an effort 
Like I have to say to myself, oh, am I hearing birdsong? What am I hearing? Are these different birds than were here last week? Um, you know, where are the birds? And then I start to look for them. And I start to look at patterns in the trees or fractal patterns, you know, along the creek bed or in the rocks or in the clouds. And then I start to really pay attention to how the breeze feels on my skin. Um, or maybe I'll pick up a rock or feel a piece of bark. So, so there, there are these things that we can do that actually help pull us out of our thinking brain and bring us into the present moment. Uh, and, and if you think about how to really engage your senses, I think that's actually, and the Japanese have found this, and you know, and I talk about this in my book, they have found this to be a great shortcut to feelings of restoration and well-being. Mm. <laughs> it reminds me a lot of when, um, just in terms of my background, I was diagnosed with postnatal depression after our second baby was born. And my psychiatrist gave me a just a daily brief exercise, sensory exercise, much the same as what you've just described. And that was my foray into mindfulness and awareness and just being in the present moment. And it's interesting, the first place that I ever put that into practice was in my garden. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And I, I think it's just such a phenomenally simple way of doing it because as you said, it gets our, our heads into the present moment, into our physical, you know, senses rather than yeah, up in our brain thinking. Yeah. It's not hard to do because in fact, once we start doing that, we realize that the natural world is fascinating. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's pleasant. You know, it really is, is pleasant to be drawn out of our heads <laughs> and looking at the clouds. It's, it's just easy. And Brooke, I'm curious, I mean, did that, did that help draw you out of your depression? Oh, significantly. Yeah. I mean, so that was really the beginning of my shift towards being happy again and being well and being, you know, content and, that is really where the whole healing process, I guess, began. You know, I, I did see a psychiatrist for a long time. I did, I was medicated for about three years, but that is the moment that still stands out to me as the time that everything began to very, very, very gradually shift towards health again. And doesn't that really gives you a whole new relationship to the natural oh, world, doesn't it? Absolutely. How critically important it is and that it's this place of refuge and safety and salvation. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. I mean, my life is completely different with completely different set of priorities now than it was back then. And a huge part mm -hmm. of that is, is time spent outdoors, you know, and I've become this raging environmentalist. And I wanted to ask you actually, whether in your personal experience and then the experiences of people you've spoken to, whether or not this kind of prioritizing time outdoors does lead to a shift in the way we view the environment and the world that we live in? Well, there is research about that. And there are people studying exactly that question. And what they have found is that, yes, absolutely. If you spend time in nature and you value it, you do become more connected to it. There's something called a nature connectedness scale. And your nature connection goes up. And as that happens, you also become more likely to help caretake it. Mm. You become more passionate about protecting it. Um, you become more interested in helping other people connect to it and advocating for things like school nature programs, for example, um, protecting open space in your communities. And in fact, you become more civic and community-minded overall. And there's an interesting different set of, of scientific studies looking at the science of awe and beauty and when we experience awe, and we often do experience it in the natural world, 
it actually makes us feel more connected to each other and more connected to our community. Right. And I think I might have read uh, some of the same research about awe because I, uh, in the second week of the experiment, that was really the 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 experience I wanted to focus on because not because I mean yes we're in the Rocky Mountains and they are awe-inspiring but because of the impact it had on the way I was operating as a person and then this research that I was that I kind of dove into was speaking about um, generosity and uh, you know civic-mindedness and connection to humanity as a almost a byproduct, I guess, of experiencing awe. And I I found that fascinating. And I love this idea that uh, the wilderness and nature are actually critical for civilization Mm. because they make us better citizens. And yet we, we, you know, as a whole are doing a very good job of dominating and, and, you know, destroying parts of it. Right. And we think that we live separate from nature. We think that nature and civilization are opposites. Whereas really they're so interwoven and dependent on each other. And until we recognize that interdependence, you know, we're just not going to take that stewardship as seriously as we need to be. And that was the other thing that I really found refreshing about your work is that you're not advocating for, you know, we don't need to go back to the dark ages. We don't need to throw our phones away. We don't need to live in tents. The world is connected. It is plugged in. And we're all part of it. I mean, the reason you and I are having this conversation is because the world is connected and, and plugged in, but it's more about finding a way forward where there is connection between the wilderness and civilization, urban living, suburban living. If you could have one, one, one wish, one goal, one, you know, dream change that would, ha- that would happen in urban environments that would allow people to bring more nature to their lives? What would that be? Yeah, that's a great question. And and I know exactly what it is. And it would be connecting children to nature. Because I feel like unless we do that, you know, we're going to lose this long, long evolved chain of connection that humans have to the natural world. Right now, so many people are disconnected from nature. We have to start again with our children get our children connected to nature, um, figure out how uh, our institutions, our urban institutions and our civic institutions can help facilitate that. So, for example, I would love to see more environmental education in schools. I would love to see more um, green schoolyards, more trees planted and and fields planted around urban schoolyards. Studies have shown that that increases well-being, lowers stress and improves test scores in children. So who doesn't want that? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, more uh, field trips for these kids, more uh, civic organizations and nonprofits that can help get children outside the city into into more kind of immersive natural environments. Uh, I think the Girl Scouts, for example, is actually a terrific organization. I w- would love to see a, a stronger nature curriculum, however, in the Girl Scouts. Right now, a lot of urban troops don't really do as much with nature as they could. And part of that is because their troop leaders are not connected to nature and didn't grow up connected to nature. So I think our best hope for the future <laughs> is to get those kids outside, get them loving nature, and I think it all can start from there. Mm, because kids are inherently curious and and slow and, and full of wonder. You know, you go for a walk around the block with a toddler and they will stop at every ant and every flower and every cat and every tree. Absolutely. You know, and it's amazing to me to see how much we have shifted away from encouraging that kind of wonder in the space of a generation. 
I mean, it's hard to to kind of separate the conversation of nature and our loss of connection to nature from technology because it seems to me that technology came in and nature went out. Is that what you've discovered in your work? <laughs> yeah, I think that is partly what ha- what has happened. I think there are many reasons why kids are indoors now. You know, part of that is because of the built environment. Part of that is because their time is overscheduled. Part of it is their parents are fearful about letting kids kind of run around outside. Mm. So I think there are a number of factors at work, but certainly technology is a huge one. And I, and I feel like, you know, we, we can be just smarter about how we allocate our time. In a way, technology is sort of like junk food. You know, we know that it, uh, it entices our brains. We know it sort of pushes our dopamine receptors and to make us want more of it. But we are giving up, you know, so much in terms of authentic connection when we allow, you know, those dopamine receptors to just take over and that addiction to take over. So I think if we think of it, you know, almost like a a food pyramid that sure, we can have some junk food, we can have some Instagram, but, you know, if the kids are little, you know, for every hour or two of YouTube and phones and video games, you know, go outside for the same amount of time. Mm. You're you're right. I mean, what what you're a parent of teenagers, first of all. So what what boundaries do you have for yourself? And then also, I mean, how do you encourage your own kids who who have grown up for the last five years in a city, um, and whose peers are, I'm assuming, you know, connected to their phones a lot of the time? How do you encourage kids? to want that, to embrace it? Yeah, good question. My kids are now 14 and 16. And I think there comes a time with teenagers when, you know, you really kind of lose control mm-hmm. <laughs> to an extent. I mean, you you can only tell them to go outside so much to a 16-year-old. And in fact, I think what's natural and normal to happen is that teenagers become very peer-focused. Mm-hmm. And that's developmentally appropriate. They want to do what their friends are doing. They want to be, they want to be spending more time on social media. I think that's normal. That's fine. We shouldn't freak out about it. I think if we've done our jobs as parents, we have developed a sense of connection to nature while they were younger. And we did have control over their moment to moment existence. Um, My kids, fortunately, do love the natural world and love doing sports outside and they love um, exploring outside. And so I know that this is something they will come back to, Mm. even if during some of their intense peer focused teenage years, you know, they kind of dip out of it for a while. My kids also were fortunate enough to be able to go to these wonderful summer camps where for weeks and weeks at a time, they did not have any electronic devices. They were able to run around, you know, in a bathing suit, you know, for weeks and weeks and play in the lake and play in the river and rock climb and mountain bike. And they love that and they know they love it. And in fact, because of that, they also realize that they don't have to have their phones all the time, Mm. which is a a great life lesson, you know, that I think that they will always have. I try to encourage them to help me walk the dog. You know, we go to parks together. We'll picnic outside. We'll still try to do family activities and outings outside. But it definitely gets harder when they're teenagers. Mm. And what do you, what does your kind of week look like in terms of getting your nature fix? I mean, are you outside hiking every day for three hours, or you know, do you have a, a mix? <laughs> <laughs> I wish. No, I I'm not, but I do have a big dog. <laughs> She's a lab husky mix, and she needs a big walk every day, and so do I. And uh, I'm fortunate here, in, you know, Washington, we do have terrific parks, 
I live very close to a park, National Park Service unit, which is the CNO Canal Trail. Mm-hmm. And I'm very close to the Potomac River. And so I am. I'm out every single day in some kind of park with my dog. And sometimes it's just 30 minutes. I also have, you know, cultivated friendships with people who like to hike, you know, in the same way I do. And so a couple of times a week, I'm out there with my girlfriends and and we're hiking together and they love it as much as I do. So it becomes um, a social event. Uh, You know, it becomes, uh, you know, something that's just really fun and shared. Sometimes I feel like I need to go alone Mm. if I'm kind of processing something difficult in my life or if I'm maybe working on a piece of writing that I need to focus on. But I also love going out there with friends. And again, I think that comes down to just um, paying attention and kind of knowing what you need on on a given day or a given week where you are kind of in your life. Sometimes you might need to take yourself camping for three days and really figure out a big problem in your life. Or like this summer, I am going on a wilderness solo. I'm going to be out there for two weeks by myself because I know that I need it. So I think if we pay attention to how we feel in different environments, what we need, um, that is the key. Yeah, and I, I, I really love the idea of making it a social thing and cultivating, as you say, friendships with people who enjoy the same thing. Because I think so often there are opportunities that we're missing out on the opportunity to spend time outdoors when we have friends and family relationships where it's let's go to the movies or let's, you know, chill out at home or let's all of which are great and lovely things to do. But there is something really wonderful with having a group of like-minded friends who you can go skiing with or who you can go for a bushwalk with. Uh, exactly. Yeah. I think it's a really and big it's great. It's obviously great for family bonding too, you know, to do those outings with your kids. I, I noticed that when my kids were little, um, you know, if they were sort of grumpy and on each other's nerves, as soon as we went outside, they started getting along and they'd start playing together and the whole dynamic would change. So, you know, it really just created this um, kind of fountain spring of well-being that lasted, you know, the rest of the day or even the rest of the weekend. So it's worth the effort That's <laughs> for it. the sake of family harmony. <laughs> it is worth the effort. That's what I'm always reminding myself of on those days where oh, it's too hard or it's, you know, it's, it's like writing or going for a run or something like that. You don't necessarily look forward to the, the beginning, but you look forward to the feeling of having done it. I this experience where at the end of the day, when I think back on my day, it's always my time outside that is my most memorable, most salient, most enjoyable part of my day. Mm. It's what I remember. Can you tell me, is there a scientific reason that we're so good at procrastinating or avoiding these things that are good for us? Well, um, there's a scientist uh, in uh, Canada who ha- she she talks about forecasting errors, that we make forecasting errors. We just um, are not very good at judging how we will feel Mm -hmm. if we go for a walk outside. We tend to think that we won't enjoy it that much, (laughs) um, as much as we actually do. And if we're walking, for example, she she ran this experiment where she had students walk uh, in tunnels to get from one part of a college campus to another. This is her name is Elizabeth Nisbet. And she had other groups of students walk above ground through a park. And the students who were going to walk through the park anticipated that they wouldn't really like it that much. The students who walked through the tunnel forecasted that they would like that just fine. And after the walks, it was the opposite. 
you know, the people who went in the parks actually enjoyed it much more than they thought. Mm. So I think we're just, we're not always very good judges of, of ourselves. <laughs> we're, we're not very good at predicting how we're going to feel. And is that why you think it's important to, to develop these habits and, and, you know, and not necessarily rely on our motivation? Because at any given point, we may be very good at talking ourselves out of something that we should actually be talking ourselves into. Well, I think the habit is maybe a good way to start. But I honestly feel that if we start paying attention to how we feel we're not going to have to talk ourselves into this. Mm. You know, we don't have to trick ourselves <laughs> with some sort of app or habit. Um, you're going to crave it. You're going to want it because you know you need it. And and that's the state where I am. It's the state where my friends are. We just can't wait to get out there and go for a walk. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, since I've been prioritizing time outdoors, I, I crave it. It is a physical craving and I will often find myself fearing, feeling irritated or chewing over a you know a problem or an idea I'm trying to to write about and not being able to get there and knowing that if I just get outside and if I stop actively thinking about it and just immerse myself in the outdoors more often than not the irritation will disappear or a creative solution will will appear and I I find that incredible and you write about that in your book as well this idea of creativity being tied to to, to time outdoors. Is there a specific reason for that? Or is it more just allowing our brain time to not be thinking and to simply immerse itself? Uh, that's a good question. I think that, that sometimes we just need more time. Um, I had a woman ask me after a talk, she said, she said, I go outside in nature, I go for a walk, but I just can't get my to-do list out of my head. Mm. What should I do? And I said, you just need to go for longer. <laughs> Go for longer because your brain will start to calm down and you will start to relax into this space. So that's one thing, go for longer. But the other thing is there are these little tricks, you know, such as, oh, let me try to hear the birds. Let me try to look for fractal patterns. Um, let me see what cool blossoms are coming up today. Uh, you know, we there are these little, little tricks we can tell ourselves to help us get out of that headspace. Is there a minimum viable amount of time for people to spend outdoors to start to feel a benefit? <laughs> yeah, I love that dose question. The researchers in Finland asked exactly that. They were interested in trying to prevent depression, mm. which is epidemic in Western countries, epidemic in Finland. Uh, and, and what they found, they came up with a very specific kind of dose suggestion, which was a minimum of five hours a month outside in um, sort of Finland's, Finland is a very forested country uh, in Finland's forests. And that translates to about 30 to 40 minutes twice a week. Wow. Um, and they found that that was just the minimum dose that actually could prevent depression. Wow. Now they said if you get 10 hours a month, that's better. <laughs> but if all you can do is five hours a month, that should be enough. Now, I mean, that all sounds to me a little bit suspicious, but just because I feel like there's so much individual variability. Mm. I think some people just need more and some people might not need as much. So I, again, it's about, you know, figuring out what, what you need at a given point in time. I know that, you know, some weeks I, I do better with getting a little bit less and some weeks I'm just like, Oh my God, get me out there. Uh, again, it's just knowing yourself. 
Yeah, and paying attention, as you say, paying attention to those cues and that that sense of irritation or cabin fever or whatever it may be that really does push you out the door. Exactly. But I think, you know, at least a couple times a week is great. And But, you know, I'll also say that the Japanese researchers found that as little as 15 minutes outside was enough to increase people's moods and also to lower their blood pressure and to lower their heart rate variability or change their heart rate variability in a way that made them more um, kind of responsive to, to, to feeling less stressed. So even 15 minutes outside can actually improve your mood for the day. Right. It's, it's just incredible to me. And also, I mean, it's, it's incredible and also not surprising given my own experiences, you know, of being able to better deal with stress and, and irritation when I am spending time outdoors. It's, so it's not surprising, but it is incredible if that, if that makes sense. And I think it's also important to mention that it's not just about stress, but that we actually can be more creative and more productive after this 15 minutes or 30 minutes outside. So, you know, if we're feeling like we're just overwhelmed and our brains are sort of fuzzy and foggy and there's so much, we're sort of overwhelmed by all this information constantly, right, coming at us, that um, even 15 minutes outside can even just change our approach to our work day. Mm. It's really, it really is in everyone's best interest to start to spend (laughs) more time outdoors, your boss, your colleagues, your employees, whoever it may be. And if you can't do that, you know, at least do your work by a window, Right. you know, find a place with natural daylight coming in. If you're studying, go sit by a daylight window, um, try to sit by a tree outside, have some potted plants in your house. Studies show that even that can help lift our mood. It's, it's quite powerful. It is. And I was reading a, a about a study in a, an Oregon prison where it wasn't actually a matter of the inmates getting outdoors, but some inmates were exercising indoors in just a plain gymnasium and some other inmates were exercising in a blue room, I think they called it, where there was videos of natural scenes and things like that being projected up on TVs. And they were they were looking at the difference in their experiences and it seemed at the point that I read that it was quite a marked difference. Have you... Have you looked at the role that maybe like screened nature can can play? Yeah, I have. I've looked at quite a few of those studies, and um, it does show that there are some benefits mm. to looking at virtual nature, but <laughs> not as many benefits as actually being in a fully immersive environment. Because if you think about a sense, which is your visual sense, if you're looking at a screen, and and that can help calm you down a little bit. I mean, hospitals have certainly found that you know patients really are drawn to looking at photos of nature. You know, if they're feeling stressed out, if you can really engage more senses, if you can really smell things and hear things, feel things, uh, you're just going to feel so much better. Mm. Yeah, I, I feel like we've barely scratched the surface here, but I just wanted to thank you so much for your time today and for the inspiration and the motivation and hopefully the, the kick in the pants that we may need. Is there one thing to wrap up that has surprised you most about you know, in your research or in your personal experience about spending more time in nature? Boy, there are quite a few things, but um, I, I'm, again, really drawn to this power of awe mm. to um, make us better citizens, to sort of change the way we relate to each other. Um, we behave in ways that are more generous and more altruistic after we see something beautiful. Um, I wasn't necessarily expecting to find data about that. And um, I think it's it's fascinating and compelling. And and boy, we, we just all need good citizenship now more than ever. 
need to feel like we're, you know, contributing to a democracy and that we're in this together and nature can really help us get there. Yeah, absolutely. I I think it's almost endless, the impact that it can have on us and our communities and our families and, you know, society in a broader sense as well. Yeah. And I'm just so grateful that you've kicked this conversation off. You know, more and more people are talking about the impact that that nature has. uh, And I'm incredibly grateful for your time today, but also for your book. Thank you so much, Brooke. And I love it that you're inspiring so many people to go outside and to do this project of being out for an hour a day. You know, I hope you'll uh, keep me up to date. I'd love to hear how, how that works out. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. Thanks, Florence. Okay. Thanks, Brooke. Who is that? Hi, Puck Pass.